All right, uh, I think we'll go ahead and get started. So obviously, uh, welcome. Um, obviously, this is a, a hot hot button topic that we're going to be covering tonight. Um, so first off, uh, I will say that 53,000 comments uh, made an impact. Um, I, I think all in all, I do appreciate, and I think we do appreciate uh, the FAA for you know, doing what a lot of people said that they wouldn't, and that's listen. Um, and I think that's very evident in the uh, final rule document that they uh, released. Um, in fact, uh, of the 480 pages uh, of the document, the first 420 of it is just responding to people's comments. Um, so uh, that's a, a, a pretty... Um, big deal. Yeah, so we uh, could say if people really want to read the document, they could jump down to page 430 or so and get to the actual rule, regulation yeah. rules. The rest of it yeah. is just uh, yeah, justification and answering questions and whatnot. Yeah. But if they, um, if they jump if they jump down to page 435, then they'd miss the 15 references <laughs> to FPV Freedom Coalition. I was about to say at that, least. So. <laughs> and, so, our, and our new title. Uh, yeah, yeah, you caught that uh, in the cybersecurity. Uh, uh, where they talked yeah. about us being pilots or the one where they talked about us being acrobatic videographers? Acrobatic <laughs> videographer. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there was also one typo on the name. That's why, because we were we were carrying 14, and then I then we realized there was a, a typo in FPVFC, so it, was, it looks like it's 15. Oh, that's how you got 15. <laughs> yep. Nice, nice. All right, so... Um... You know, a big part of that is uh, what they came out with. So first and foremost, obviously, are going to be the effective dates. So for us operators, uh, once the rule is published within the Federal Register, we have a 60-day window plus 30 months before all this becomes effective, uh, which basically means that we have that period of time to either comply with standard remote ID uh, or uh, broadcast module-based remote ID or no remote ID if you choose to fly in a Freya, which, you know, is a great win for a lot of uh, um, AMA uh, pilots who, you know, have flown at those types of sites for a long time are, you know, definitely comfortable flying in those types of uh, conditions and um, where they will not have to put remote ID on their aircraft. So... Um, but let's, I'm going to break this down a little further. Manufacturers, they have 60 days plus 18 months to comply. So that's approximately September 22nd or of 2022. Uh, and that basically means anybody who is producing an aircraft, mm. uh, a complete aircraft, and there's a, a fine distinction there, a complete aircraft, uh, will need to com basically comply with standard remote ID. So I have a little um, question about that. Uh, okay. Can you produce an aircraft for flight inside, or can you produce an aircraft for flight only in a Freya, or can you produce an aircraft only for flight with a module? So there's a couple different scenarios there. Um, if you're producing, I don't know the answer on an aircraft for strictly indoor. Um, I, I would have to... Kind yeah, of think about that, that one for the a FAA second. has no jurisdiction there, so correct. So you know whether they would get away with the labeling, 
you know, for indoor use only. Maybe. I'm not sure. Um, obviously, there are, you know, little micro drones and whatnot that we know of that uh, do operate strictly indoor. Um, in fact, you know, this, the slightest gust of wind will send them flying. So, um, but on the flip side, uh, um, in terms of producing them for broadcast only, yes, to a certain extent. Um, so I'm going to use the, the biggest example that we've come across over the last couple of days, and that's going to be ready to flies. Um, so companies like GetFPV, RDQ, PyroDrone, they all produce, you know, quote unquote, ready to fly drones where they build it, you buy it kind of situation. Um, now if that aircraft is complete and I do mean complete, so it's not missing a major component like motors or an RF receiver or a flight controller, something like that. If it's not missing that and it just comes straight out of the box, ready to go, then it must comply with standard remote ID. Even if you uh, which only ever plan to... to fly it at a Freya? Uh, yes, I do believe so. David, are you on the same page with me on that? Uh, I am. If it, if it comes as a, a fully equipped, it has to um, uh, comply with the remote ID. And not only that, it has to comply with all the production requirements. So, yeah, all the standard so, rules. Mm -hmm. yeah. Someone so, else was trying to say something? Yeah. Maybe not. So this right. is... This is what Josh is saying is really important from a perspective of, so can I buy components and put it together myself? And the so, answer is, go yeah, ahead. Absolutely, you can. And that falls under the conditions of what we are now calling home, or what the FAA is now calling home-built unmanned aircraft. So basically, a home-built unmanned aircraft is defined by the FAA as an unmanned aircraft that an individual built solely for education or recreation. Um, I find that whole, interesting because you can't build your own for commercial use. Uh, well, it's, it's no longer considered home built. Right. Okay. Um, so, so a home built can only be used for education or for recreation. Right. So and a home built aircraft itself is not subject to the design or production requirements of the producer that would be the manufacturer as long as there is some level of assembly by the end user. So in an example that I uh, wrote up today, so company A, let's say, you know, could be GetFPV, provides a recreational ready-to-fly quadcopter that does not include an RF receiver in the package. Because the kit is incomplete, the company is not subject to the design or production requirements. Because a quadcopter was built for either education or recreation, the end user is also not subject to design or production requirements. The operator is, however, required to comply with remote IDs. Or with remote ID rules. <clears throat> okay, so, so how would this affect someone like, say, Joshua Bardwell? They send him a kit for him to put together, fly outside, and review as a Part 107 pilot for his YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. That's no longer possible. So, no. Uh, well, it it needs to be essentially missing a major component for it to not have to comply with standard remote ID. So, um, so in the kit, let's say as an example, the kit you buy, uh, is missing that RF, uh, receiver. So your, contr your controller, your transmitter receiver. Um, 
So my recommendation to companies like Pyrodrone and, and Get FPV and, and RDQ and so on and so forth is is like on those pages where you purchase the ready to fly, a lot of them have a pick your receiver kind of option that needs right. to go away. But then, and, then if you're doing a home build, you can't use it for Part 107 anymore. You mm, you can with a um, a broadcast you can module. With the, yeah, with a broadcast module. <clears throat> But then it doesn't count as home built anymore. But right. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm sort of getting <laughs> off yeah, topic. No, this is important. This is important. And it so is. If, you have, if you have an existing uh, drone, so, you know we've got uh, you know a couple of us have more than two. Um, then you you just uh, put your single broadcast module on it, and you can fly that under Part 107. Yeah, I would agree that that's the intent of the module is you can retrofit and you can make a home built uh, able to meet the regulations. Um, yeah. And actually, if you look in the rules, they don't ever actually talk about home built. It's just in the explanation section up above. They define what home built is and so on and so forth. But so the in the rules, rule, they just mention. Yeah, in the rules, they just mention there's an exemption. Um, so we got two years. Remote IDs are implemented? Uh, two and a half. 30, 30. Roughly September 2023 before operators have to comply with it. Yeah. yeah. And text chat will, uh, you know, would be, that's what uh, tonight is for. If you, you know, if you think that we're wrong on a point where, you know, welcoming you know, to, to be challenged, we, but we did, uh, we did cross uh, these T's and dots a fair number of I's to, uh, to get to this. Yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, we're we're only people and we make mistakes. And, you know, there's been a couple of scenarios already where we have missed something that was right in front of our face and it changed the entire, you know, definition of it. And I would also say the rules are not necessarily so clear cut that even reading them would give you the right answer. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a couple where it's like, wait, what? Yeah, yeah. All right, so standard remote ID. Let's talk about that for a second. So um, in the documents that we're creating, uh, we're kind of creating acronyms uh, for some of these. So standard remote ID is becoming SRID or SRID. I, I'm not going to call it SRID. It's just going to be SRID. Um, those remote IDs, so when, you, when these manufacturers are producing an aircraft with standard remote ID, it needs to be uh, integrated. Hey, Josh. Yeah. P Peter FPV, you, your mic is open. Could you go on mute, please? Thanks, Josh. Yeah. Um, so standard remote ID um, needs to be integrated into the UAS system. Now, there's a fine distinction between a UAS and a UA, uh, an unmanned aircraft. So a UAS is the complete system. So that would be the vehicle and the control station. Um, it needs to operate from takeoff to shutdown, and the operator must land as soon as practical if um, the remote ID stops broadcasting. Um, there's certain messages that uh, needs to be broadcast from the remote ID, and that's going to be the identity of the aircraft, which would either be a serial number or a session ID. Um, it needs to broadcast the latitude, longitude, and geometric altitude of the control station. And that's something it also a needs lot of people are not going to be thrilled with. Yes. So essentially with that, um, it will broadcast the location of where you are at. 
Um, second to that uh, is the latitude, longitude, geometric altitude, and the velocity of the unmanned aircraft, as well as a time mark identifying um, each individual message and the emergency status of the unmanned aircraft. Um, it needs to have uh, a self-test function, which uh, operates both prior to takeoff as well as during flight. Um, so prior to takeoff, if the RID function, uh, functionality is not there, then um, the aircraft is not able to take uh, is not able to take off. And then um, it must continually monitor the remote ID um, functionality um, and let the um, person in control know if it stops working. So <clears throat> um, there's a lot there. Um, and again, this needs to, the standard remote ID, the key point here is, is that it's integrated into the system of the aircraft as well as the control station. It needs to be able to stop the um, unmanned aircraft from taking flight, uh, which means it's kind of a, a, a pass, no pass kind of situation. And it's actually embedded into the firmware. Um, so I want to jump in here real quick and just feasibly. Go ahead. Uh, for some people who are asking about this, um, like having GPS in your transmitter. So we're talking right now about the standard remote ID, which is buying a drone that comes pre-built to comply with all the regulations. So think about when you add a module, it's different. Yeah. So think about it from this perspective: you buy a, a DJI drone that's set, ready to go. It would include, or it should include, standard remote ID. All that stuff would be uh, embedded into the ecosystem that DJI creates around that drone. So as an example, uh, Dan, and I'm sure some of you probably fly the DJI system, which uh, or the DJI uh, HD FPV system, that creates an ecosystem between the um, air unit, the goggles, and the transmitter if you're using that. Um, so all that would be interconnected, and it would be the same thing on something like a Mavic or uh, an Inspire or something like that that you get from DJI. Yeah, and in those <clears throat> cases, I guess the control station would have to have GPS in it to sell, send it to the drone so that the drone could put it in its broadcast message. Yes, absolutely. Which is something that the remote ID module that you add to a home-built drone does not need to do. Correct. So um, any questions so far on the standard remote ID beyond that? Uh, let's see, do we know if the standard RID yeah. is going to be encrypted or is it open to the public? Okay, so it's the messaging itself is going to be open to the public. So it needs to be able to uh, be broadcast on a compatible frequency or on a frequency that's compatible with personal wireless devices. Personal wireless devices would be things like your iPhone, <clears throat> your Android. Um, think about, uh, and this is the example they give in the document, it, think about Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. Um, <clears throat> so it would be able to be picked up uh, by those devices and those messages would not be encrypted. Um, the one thing that would be kind of not encrypted, but kind of hidden behind the wall would be your session ID or your serial number. The individual, like, let's say you got Joe Schmo down the street. He picks up on his on his iPhone that you are flying. He's not going to be able to get access to the database with your personal information 
that you submit to the FAA, like your address, your name, your phone number, all that kind of stuff. Correct. They'll just get like a serial number. They won't know who you are, but they'll know everything else about where you are and what you're flying and where it's going. Yes. So to TB's question, the answer is yes. You would, you know, the public would have access to our telemetry of the aircraft. The idea Mm -hmm. is from the FAA is they want, if you're, if somebody's out in a park flying a drone and somebody else doesn't like it, they want that person to be able to bring out their cell phone, look at it and say, Hey, this person standing over there is flying a drone and I want to report them. Right. And, and to text check's question, can they use this information to look you up? Yeah. The answer to that is no. And interestingly, that's different from general aviation where you can. Um, and so in this instance, you use your registration number and or a serial number or a session. So they, they are thinking about that they will anonymize uh, what's uh, coming down. And uh, it, it, the FAA will carry the uh, personal information uh, link, and that will be restricted to law enforcement. Uh, to wash buckets uh, question, how will a phone receive an RID signal? I would imagine that it would come through via an app. Um, <clears throat> whether that's third party or first party, uh, it needs to be readily accessible by anybody. Um, so the question would be if DJI creates their own app to read their own specific information, or if it's just going to be a general app, um, where all that information can, can become down. I would imagine the FAA would push for a general app as opposed to a proprietary app. I assume um, that they're going to request that everyone making remote ID devices uh, comply to an ASTM standard yes. for how the messages are transmitted. And then any app that can read that standard should be able to display the information. And I would imagine apps like uh, Kitty Hawk and uh, maybe UAS Sidekick um, might integrate this this kind of information into their existing apps. Yeah, Washbucket, they, they expect the signal to go far enough for people to get them. Um, that remains to be seen. So Bluetooth, um, uh, depending on the um, the uh, version of Bluetooth, I think uh, there's uh, Bluetooth 5 has a, a, um, a long long range functionality on it that I think Dave was saying goes up to like a couple of miles. miles. Yeah. And so good news to me is, you know, this is not 25 miles away. So so. if I'm out in the middle of nowhere flying and Mm -hmm. I have my standard remote IT aircraft, can I still fly even if that, I was under the impression I can still fly even if that remote ID signal is not picked up somewhere, as long as it's still being transmitted Correct. To be able to be picked up, I can still yeah, fly. Right. Exactly. Yeah, critically important point. And that's that's why while our heads are exploding a little bit trying to understand this, we are we are ecstatic that there's not a network requirement. You know, you don't have to connect to the internet to take off, you don't have to show where you are. So, you know, yes. So as long as you're broadcasting, it's we're good to go. Yeah, and that's one of the key things that they did removed is that network <clears throat> capability. So there's no data plan that you need. You don't have to send any information to a unmanned service supplier, uh, any anything like that. It's literally over the air broadcast, just like an FPV signal, just like your RF signal. It's just a different type of signal that will be coming off your aircraft. At, at this time, <clears throat> which I believe is mentioned quite a few times in the the document. 
So TB, um, there is no data that's stored uh, as long as somebody doesn't, you know, basically capture it via screenshot or anything on their phone. Um, there's nothing to be uploaded. It's literally an over-the-air broadcast. It goes the same place your FPV feed goes. It just goes off into the ether. Yeah, like if, if you felt like it, you could stick an antenna on your roof and just constantly record uh, ID <laughs> broadcast if you wanted to. So, um, TextJet, I've had that same question on how the Bluetooth pairing will work. Um, that depends. Uh, it. You know, I don't I imagine don't know there's if, any pairing necessary. It's. I it's think it's a just going to be a only broadcast signal. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. So, uh, let's see. Yeah, where were questions we? that I missed? Uh, we're kind of wrapping up standard remote ID. So, um, essentially, uh, you know, there's a couple, you know, accuracy issues um, or accuracy requirements, I should say. So basically that you know, the latitude and longitude, the uh, altitude is all accurate within a certain amount, within a certain probability. Um, and that's the same for both standard remote ID and broadcast modules. So moving on, we're going to talk about the broadcast modules. So this is something uh, we really push for, and I know a couple other organizations really push for. We all knew remote ID was coming. We all knew that uh, based on the NPRM that it was going to be uh, pretty rough if we went the route that the FAA originally decided to go. So one of the things we did push for was an add-on module. So what this does is it makes it so that the entire United States fleet of drones, whether it's a DJI, whether it's the one in your garage that you fly with on a weekend, um, they would all become obsolete if the NPRM stayed the way it was. With the addition of a broadcast module, it's an add-on component, just like a, a VTX, uh, or you know something similar that you would put onto your drone, it basically gives you the ability to comply with remote ID. So it's an upgrade kind of thing to make sure you're compliant and that you're um, staying within the rules. So it basically has the same requirements as the standard remote ID with the exceptions of uh, a couple of things. So the module will not be integrated into the unmanned aircraft <clears throat> system. So the module is just a add-on component. It just broadcasts. <clears throat> it will not be integrated into your flight controller. It will not restrict takeoff. Um, the operator themselves is responsible for not initiating takeoff if the module is not functional and, or not broadcasting. Um, the serial number requirement, uh, before the serial number would be the serial number of the aircraft, whereas here it would be the serial number of the module um it's not integrated to the control station so it's not required to report the location of the um, operator it is required to report the location of the takeoff so when you take off it stores that information and broadcasts that repeatedly along with the rest of the other um uh messages <clears throat> um the other big difference is that um, with a broadcast module, the FAA has stipulated that the person operating the unmanned aircraft must be able to see the unmanned aircraft at all times throughout. This is a point of contention right now and something that we are following up on. 
the way it's worded here is that uh, the the actual person flying has to be able to see it, and that means that would mean essentially that FPV is not allowed because they don't mention anything about a visual observer or if a visual observer can satisfy the requirement. Now, there's a couple people in two different camps. Um, one camp basically says this nullifies FPV. Another camp says, well, there's other statements in the document saying they're not defining visual line of sight in this document. So the old standard where a visual observer would satisfy this is still valid. And I would we argue are looking it doesn't to... actually say what it doesn't actually say visual line of sight in this sentence. So it doesn't right. matter. Absolutely. So it's something that we are going to clarify with the FAA. Uh, we are going to uh, talk with them and see if the language can be adjusted or if, you know, we can get some clarification on the intent here. Yeah, so they really uh, are not intending to block FPV. Hopefully they can change this to include something to say that you can have a visual observer be able to see it for you. Right. So Otherwise, can you imagine, like, if, if the local law enforcement are actually versed in the regulations and they read that sentence and saw you flying FPV, what would they think? Right, exactly. So, um, TextJet, how many people have an observer available? Um, well, the question would be, you're already required to have a visual observer if you're flying FPV. So, there's that. So, nothing is essentially has really changed. We just don't know if the language is the right language that uh, they need to be using. Like so. Bruce Simpson, we all have uh, the Terminator at our side watching our flights for us. Yes. Okay. So the broadcast module itself, um, which I, you know, Dave and I talked, uh, originally I was calling it the BMRID. I've just changed it to <laughs> module remote ID. Thank uh, you. <laughs> so, so MRID. Um, so um, it's, a, it's a definite step in the right direction. It definitely makes it uh, a little more feasible for the hobbyists to comply with remote ID. Um, now, the FAA is estimating somewhere between $20 and $50 for a remote ID module. Um, that remains to be seen, but this is going to be one of those things where it's kind of like your goggles or your transmitter. You're going to buy it once, you're going to buy one, and you're going to use it on all your aircraft. You can swap it between aircraft. Uh, it doesn't. It's not tied to a specific aircraft, um, and you can swap it at will. I'll be curious uh, to see how, how that all works out because, like, if you think about it, it says it has to notify the operator if it's malfunctioning or not working. So imagine in an FPV drone, maybe something in your OSD has to let you know that you're module is not working so it's more than mm -hmm. just a complete standalone module it has to be integrated into the or talking to the flight controller in some way well it could be something where it comes over like the s port on your transmitter as well uh so like if you've got uh, fr sky tech um you know you've got the s uh s port where you can download your telemetry to your radio so that could give you feedback as well um it could be something like on a beeper uh, it could be a couple of different options. Yeah. Curious to see how people will implement that. Yeah. All right. And then lastly, the third is no remote ID. So there are those who feel like they don't want to use remote ID or are comfortable, uh, 
flying at a, a designated flying site. So if you have no remote ID, you are restricted to flying in a FAA recognized identification area or a FRIA. Um, and the person, that same sentence from the broadcast module is also present in the no remote ID. Mm. The person operating the unmanned aircraft must be able to see the unmanned aircraft at all times throughout the operation. Again, something that we will seek to clarify. Correct. Because if that <clears throat> means there's no FPV even at a FRIA, that would mean uh, huge consequences for, say, multi-GP races at an AMA field. Correct. All right. So... Um, let's move on to, uh, any questions before I do that, any questions on the broadcast module or no remote ID? Several people are typing. <laughs> yeah, I see that. Okay. All right. So seems like we're doing okay. All right. So Frias, yes, you guys are correct. Um, only a community-based organization or an educational institution can apply for a FRIA. So community-based organizations, uh, that hasn't technically been defined yet, but uh, an organization such as the AMA or such as ourselves, uh, and there are several others out there that are seeking to become CBOs. Um, if they do become CBOs, then uh, they would be able to apply for FRIA uh a status for certain uh, areas. Uh, also, educational institutions, uh, and very key here is that every every type of educational institution, whether it's a primary or secondary school, trade schools, or college or university could apply for a FRIA. Um, this is fantastic because this allows for STEM to continue to thrive. Yeah, I could imagine um, hopefully some schools will get together and make a, be able to submit to the FAA and say, yeah, our, you know, football field, whatever is a FRIA. And when we do our STEM classes and our little drones outside there, they can fly there. Correct. Which is awesome. Um, so, uh, if you apply, if a CBO or a, a school, uh, applies for FRIA, um, and is approved, it's, uh, recognized for 48 calendar calendar months. So a four year, um, the one big change in the FRIA, uh, kind of situation is originally there was going to be a 12 month period in which anybody could, or the, the designated people could apply for a FRIA. Um, and then after that, they would accept no more applications. Uh, that's gone now, um, because the FAA has recognized that FRIAs are always going to have a place, whether it's for STEM or whether it's for, uh, People who cannot put remote ID, you know, there are certain aircraft that would not take a remote ID. Um, so, uh, you know, things like gliders that operate on minimal battery power uh, just for servos and stuff like that. Um, but uh, so Frias uh, are going to be an indefinite thing at this point, And I will stress at this point. Free is, uh, can be renewed. Um, you need to submit for renewal at least 120 days before expiration. Um, and uh, um, in order to terminate uh, an individual, the individual who applied can terminate the FRIA or the FAA can terminate the FRIA if it poses a risk to safety um, or national security. Um, and a couple other reasons if you've you know, supplied uh, false information. 
And getting to right. TB's question there, yes, people, you know, there's a time frame where it's good for, and then once they expire, they have to reapply for a free, uh, and, but they can keep it going indefinitely as long as they keep reapplying and as long as the FAA keeps agreeing to Approving it. Approving it, yeah. All right, let's see, spot room. FAA said that would make the RID rule. Good that FAA backed off things, but but the rest of what's left just sucks. Um, I mean, it's definitely a massive back off, I would say, TextJet. I, I would say uh, I think it's better than anybody thought it would be. Um, <laughs> Except for what the would... administrator told the kids in that live chat. All right. <laughs> let's see, but let's see. Okay, so all right. Any question more questions on Frias? I'm trying to get through as much of this as I can. I want to find the first person who makes their backyard a Fria. <laughs> well, they'd have to have a CBO do it, so I'm sure uh somebody'll do it. <laughs> if only all right. the FPVFC could say every member's backyard is a Fria location. Right. All right, so registration. So this was another big uh, contentious issue within the uh, NPRM. So registration will now um, be the same as it is today with uh, one little change. So registration for recreational is going to continue to be on a per operator or per pilot basis. So you pay your $5. It's good for three years. Uh, you give them your information. Uh, you no longer need to. Originally, the uh, the ask from the FAA and the NPRM was that uh, even recreational would pay on a per uh, 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 unmanned aircraft basis, so five dollars per aircraft. Um, so they went away with that. So now it's still saying staying the same, five dollars for the operator. You get your your little FAA uh, um, certificate. Uh, that gives you your number that you put on your aircraft. Um, the only change is, is if you're flying a standard remote ID aircraft, the serial number issued by the manufacturer um, needs to be input into that and you need to keep it up to date. So, um, and that serial number is valid for only one registration. So let's say if a father and a son are both flying the same drone, uh, that particular uh drone can only be uh that serial number can only be keyed under one registration okay so um technically it would belong to one of them and technically i i don't know i don't know how that would fall on uh if the other individual could take it out and fly it i would imagine that they would be responsible And then uh, registrate. Oh, and then if you have a module uh, remote ID, uh, remote ID module, the serial number issued by the manufacturer needs to be submitted. Um, so, and if you have multiple modules, if you're you know feeling a little spicy and you want to have uh, a module for each of your UASs, you will input all of those, um, not just one. If you have, yeah. So I would expect in the coming years on the FAA is drone zone website where you go to register there'll be a new area for recreational pilots to be able to enter all this new information while the the serial numbers of the modules are asking for yes okay so let me catch up on questions here does a free end need to be private property i know of a dry lake that is a popular spot to fly here so one of the things that you would do wash bucket 
would probably be partnering with whoever uh, technically oversees that land um, to see if uh, you could, um, if if basically they would give permission to allow you to apply for Freya, which case, you know, they may want to be the point of contact for that, or they may designate you as the point mm. of contact for that. Um, but you would enter in that conversation with the people who actually oversee that land or own that land. Let's see. So a city, if a city provided a flying field with no club affiliation, I guess they will have to get, yes. So you would have to affiliate with a CBO or an educational institution uh, to uh, apply for it. <clears throat> Let's see. The... Is the FPVFC still in the process of being accepted as a CBO? So um, that is a goal. Yes, that is our goal. Um, however, the FAA has not released on how we become a CBO. They have released some guidelines into what a CBO must entail, and we've uh, jumped through those hoops. However, there's no way to apply to become a CBO at the current time. Let's see. Uh, I wonder if there'll be a limit on how many free as a single CBO can register. So somebody like the AMA, um, uh, Dave, do you know how many fields the <laughs> he CBO? Just posted it. Oh, 2,600 flying sites. So I would imagine that no. It's got to be at least big enough for that. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> so registration for part 107 will also stay the same as it is. Um, it would be $5 per aircraft that would be flown under part 107 conditions or rules. Um, there is a change to the recurrent uh, recurrency exam for the 107. In the there operations. is, yes. So yeah, for night awesome. operations, yeah. But I do well, just want to... Yeah, if you want your, if I understood it correctly, if you uh, get your recurrency, it's you can get it online and it's free as opposed to whatever the fee was, plus every 24 months you have to go in person to take a test. Did I follow that one right? So, yeah, mm -hmm. I believe that once the test is updated to include <clears throat> uh, flying over people and night flying, that once they integrate those questions, that uh, everybody will be required to take a recurrency. Um, it won't wait until you are up for your 24 months. So once that's applied, everybody will be required and it will be free. Uh, for the recurrency, not to take the initial, but for the recurrent. Um, so, so one thing I do want to stress that a lot of people seem to get wrong is that if you're a Part 107 pilot doing an operation under Part 107, all of your drones need to be registered, no matter how light they are. If you have a one gram drone and you're flying it, it still needs to be registered. And if it needs to be registered, it needs remote ID. Correct. So let's see. Um, no. Okay, Dave, you got that one. AMA sites are not automatically. They will have to apply and be approved. Yeah, and I assume um, the AMA will have a process for that so that each each little group might submit for each of their flying sites or however that will work. Yeah. Yeah, the AMA is going to be a clearinghouse. So John CC, uh, so a tiny whoop needs to be registered. If you, yep, absolutely. If you fly it outside. Sure and if you're using it to uh, for commerce. All right. Um, so a couple yeah. of things uh, that are not in my notes, but I do want to touch on. Um, 
So big question, who's going to produce the RID modules? Uh, the answer to that is we don't know. Um, so the basically the 30 months is time for somebody to produce a, a remote ID module. Now, the opposition to that is manufacturers only have 18 months to start to integrate uh, standard remote ID into their aircrafts. Um, could it be that, you know, one of our hobby organiz or companies uh, create a remote ID module? Absolutely. Um, but I would imagine uh, there's going to be some significant uh, R&D, uh, research and development costs associated with that, as well as um, going through the process with the FAA to get those approved. And they do need to be approved. Uh, it goes through a means of compliance test which basically, um, if I were to uh, create one, I would have to submit all the information, how it works, uh, and basically prove that it's able to meet the minimum requirements, um, and then provide testing and validation, and uh, you know, so on and so forth. So, One thing I find kind of funny is that, it, doesn't it say that you cannot begin creating a remote ID module for 18 months or something? Like, no, I didn't hear that. I didn't see that. Why is there a low, lower limit on, like, I understand the FAA is not going to start approving them right away, but there was some, right. like, time frame of you can't create one yet because we're not ready. Oh, you're going to have to point that out to me because I didn't see that in there. I'm pretty sure that's in one of the dates somewhere. That's funny. All right. So, um, overall, uh, it doesn't beat us up too bad. Um, I don't think that any of this is completely over the top. I think that uh, it provides a path for remote ID to be common sense and to uh, be complied with. Does it does it add a little extra burden? Yes. Uh, are you going to have to think a little bit harder when you go out to fly and make sure that your equipment's uh, working the way it should? Yes, you should be doing that already, though. Um, but, uh, um, I don't think as long as the remote ID modules are not overly expensive or gigantic, um, then, or, gigantic or, you know, weigh a bunch, uh, I think we're going to be fine. Yeah. Um, so as we go through and look back, you know, do the summary of what, what changed is, uh, you know, for the better is that, uh, network they got rid of, so it's just broadcast. The module is really important for being able to uh, retrofit existing drones. Uh, home built was expanded, so that uh, it's easier for us to build and fly uh, with components. Mm -hmm. Free as free as were expanded, so yeah, I'm, you know we're not trying to simply say oh everything's great, but in comparison to the NPRM, this is uh, as Josh said earlier, this is better than we anticipated. Absolutely. All right, so I'm going to open the floor up to any questions on anything remote ID. Um, yeah, good question, Alex. What if no one makes a module? What if there's, like, no incentive for people to make one? <laughs> <laughs> if they all pour their development into making a standard compliant drone, yeah. why would you make a module? The well, aspiring the... electrical engineer has that question. <laughs> yep, all right. Okay. Alex, get on it, bro. Um, <laughs> And we want to swing back. We want to swing back on that uh, FPV. I'll ask my professors. What was that? Sorry. He'll ask his oh, professors. Oh, <laughs> there you go. 
be careful working on on it at school because the intellectual property will become the property of the school. Yeah. The uh, so that FPV point that uh, Josh mentioned earlier that that has us uh, concerned and hopefully we're just being a little paranoid, but we will be looking into that. Every little bit count. All right. So, um, has there any been any word of the editing part of one part one hundred seven exam to include our ID soon? I'm starting to get mine. I wonder if I should be prepared for a new set of questions. I haven't seen them state that they are going to update it for remote ID. I would imagine when they update it for flight over people and night operations that they will probably update it with remote ID as well. But I haven't seen any documents stating that. Yeah, they definitely said they were going to add the night operation stuff as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, any word if RDQ will continue with their lawsuit? Um, that I'm not sure of. I mean, my particular take and our particular take at this point, with the exception of the um, issue with the visual observer, you don't see a whole lot that would... Um, need to be litigated. I have not seen Race Day Quad say anything publicly at all, I guess, about either way. I don't know if anyone yeah. else has noticed anything, so I assume they're still planning for it, but I, I have not seen them mention anything yet. Yeah, and we're having, uh, the good news is uh, you've seen, well, I don't know if, you've, uh, if you know, yeah, we did, We uh, thanks to Dan, it's out there. We have endorsements now from a number of the uh, retailers uh, from Road Riot from GetFBV, uh, Pyro from, that, uh, from uh, Pyro Drone, Gilly Nation, um, as well as uh, Race Day Quad, and so we're uh, talking to uh, each of these folks. And um, with respect to the litigation, you know, personally, I'm with uh, I'm with Josh. It's like uh, you know, we look at look through what was uh, produced in the final rule, and you know what would be you know what's to litigate against. And it, you know they, the FAA, I think, did a very credible job of going through the uh, 53,000 uh, some odd uh, comments. And then, as we said, spending 200 pages in the final rule. Uh, much larger case for standard ID broadcasting. Pilot's location is going to be a point. Yeah, that could be a it is. contention. Uh, yes, that's one that. And so, um, you know, what's the, you know, so what's the point of litigation? Is it? Privacy, um, you know, trans, you know, asking an aircraft to broadcast, you know, the things that they're asking are apps. You know, there's absolutely an analog uh, in general aviation uh, with ADSB. So mm -hmm. this is, you know, this is 10 years in the making, and 20, you know, ADSB 2020, 50, yes, I think it's now up to 70 some odd percent of manned aircraft uh, have ADSB out. Uh, yes, replying uh, to text, DJI. has DJI said anything? I have not heard anything yet, but I hope Brendan posts some blog like he has in the past. That would be great. Usually, yeah, usually Brendan's really good at uh, blasting that stuff out. Yeah, and I can I can tell you they're uh, very happy with the um, uh, the network uh, versus broadcast. They uh, and this this is to evidence how uh, the DJI team really is. You know, they are consumer uh, thoughtful. And so they were very worried that the network would create yet another cell phone charge for anyone who wants to fly a drone. And that's uh, off the table. So I know they're very happy about that. And so are we. Yep. 
Uh, he is, he is not required for uncontrolled airspace. So that's correct. Now you're correct. Yep. Uh, Rise, uh, <clears throat> Dave, on Rise's uh, note on the Amazon Smile, we may need to contact Amazon and get it recognized as a, you know, give them our 501c3 document. Yes. And and, uh, and uh, Rise, if you would uh, send me an email on that so that I, I can uh, track that. I, I want to click uh, on that little... That blue words where it says why zero dollars <laughs> <laughs> so um, and rice uh we really do appreciate that um emailing now why is my dress okay this is good yeah and so uh interestingly there was a from uh there was a similar thing from google and it was uh they had a, a clearinghouse called venivity so and we've gone through some of these processes so thank you and uh, we'll follow up on it yeah, Amazon Smile is not one I thought of when we needed to set things up. So, yeah. all right. Um, any other questions on remote ID? I see people are typing. Hey, Kojo. Yeah. Hey, Amen. Um, so, for part 107, um, you just because I came in a little late. So, you said that it's night and flying over people, and, and they say vehicles as well. Part of that. So, there is information in the document on flying over vehicles as well. Um, it needs to be, and this is me rough paraphrasing because I glanced at the document. I haven't gone in depth. So I do believe it needs to be on a closed course, close to the public. And everybody that is within the closed area needs to be aware that there is a drone flying over the vehicle. It also said uh, you could transit across uh, vehicles. So I think you could like go across a highway, but you can't maintain flight over a vehicle for long periods of time or something yeah for, so for, for clarity what we're talking about is a separate rule so this is the op, uh, uas operations over flight which includes night flight and so, so this is separate from the remote identification final yeah. rule so and go ahead so does it so you so i heard you say that they're going to add the for at least the night portion an additional training, I'm assuming it's like a training module that you have to go do that's added on to your part 107 recurrency. Is that right? Yeah, that's it's exactly. question. They're adding questions to the recurrency exam. Yes, the exam. Exactly right. And so when whenever that comes out, we don't know when that's going to be yet, right? Um, we have to go, even if you haven't, your part 107 hasn't expired yet, you still have to go and redo it, renew it. Yes. The test. Yeah, and it will be free though, uh, according to the document. The first time or every time? No, the first time, once they add the questions, um, it, they will require a recurrency. Is it just uh, night, night questions, or is it going to also be um, flying over people and vehicles questions? I don't have an answer to that. Again, I haven't deep dove into the document yet. Okay. I can send you a link to the document if that will. Yeah, sure. Thanks. And, this, and the, uh, this, uh, the uh, flying over people and flying at night, to me, was like, oh, boy. Yeah, it'll take you know everyone. Yeah, you know, first you have to have your part 107, and that's good. And we were talking a little earlier. Yeah, it's a good idea to get your 107. Okay, so you you know, all right? Um, either either have it, or I'm thinking about getting my part 107. Then you look down category one, category two, category three, category four, new category. So this is similar to what was uh, put out uh, last year on in the NPRM for flight uh, over people or operations over people. And this brings out the, let's see, is it 11 and 25 uh, foot-pounds of kinetic energy? So for the engineers in the community, you can calculate that the 
a four or five inch uh, drone can uh, fly about 10 miles an hour and uh, uh, manage under the uh, the lower uh, kinetic energy threshold. <coughs> so this is, you know, this, you know, our, our heads, you know, drop a little and go, oh gosh. So this, this one, this one is going, you know, this is a, a lot. And so if, if this is an area that you're really interested in, you know, this, these are a lot of regulations. However, if you have a parachute, you might be able to get it done. And that's, you know, sounds a little tongue in cheek, but you know, that in fact uh, could be a way through this to make the, uh, uh, to satisfy the requirements in the, uh, in the categories. I know there are a lot of people that are bummed because they think uh, a map, well, part of that rule for flying over people says that if it's under 250 grams, you can fly over people. But it has to have prop yeah. guards. So if you take a Mavic Mini that's 249 <laughs> grams and add prop guards to it, now it's over 250, uh, and so you can't fly over right. people uh, anymore. Exactly. Yeah. There's and then it um, as you read through carefully with the category one, two, three, etc. I think category two, three, and four all have to be standard or broadcast module, so they have to comply with uh, remote identification. Uh, to answer the real Jonathan Frank's question, will the module cause interference because it's on 2.4 or 5.8 gigahertz, the rule says it can't cause interference and it can't uh, be interfered with. So they've got it all figured out. That The rule says it can't. <laughs> so therefore it won't. There right? will be no, we declare there will be no <laughs> electromagnetic radiation. I think right, that so would be offer... a very difficult thing to accomplish, but maybe possible. So to answer TextJet's uh, uh, question or statement, uh, remote pilots in command who wish to conduct small unmanned aircraft operations at night must complete either the updated initial test or the updated recurrent online training prior to conducting. And then I do believe knowledge test updates the initial remote pilot knowledge test to include night subject areas. Additionally, the final rule replaces the requirement to complete an in-person recurrent test every 24 calendar months. The updated requirement is for remote pilots to complete online recurrent training, which will include night subject areas. Uh, the online recurrent training will be offered free of charge to remote pilots. So, the sorry, the training, not the test. I'm sorry, I got that wrong. I am so sorry. Hey, um, for the night stuff, is it uh, like um, like at any time of the night? Because before it used to be, they used to have weird rules on, you know, 30, some 30 twilight, twilight. Is it like all night flight now? Like, is there a limitation on on when? There appears to be no. Yep. Any any. Yep. You know, Alex has beat me to it. <laughs> I think they're trying to come up to be par more parody with uh, recreational flight, which has no limits on night flying. Yeah. Okay. Do you still have to have uh, anti-collision lights in the specific yes. type of lighting? Yes. Correct. Three nautical mile vision as well as three statute light. mile. Statute, statute mile. Statute. Thank you. So they just basically ease the waiver requirement. Basically, that's gone now. The waiver. Yeah. That's correct. And same thing over flying over people and vehicles. That waiver requirement is gone as long as you have what on the drone. Like, what does the drone have to have? So it says uh, must be category one, category two, or category three eligible to operate over people, may not maintain sustained flight over moving vehicles, transit operations only. For an operation under category one, category two, or category three, the small unmanned aircraft throughout the operation must remain within or over a closed or restricted access site. 
and all human beings located inside a moving vehicle within the closed restricted access site must be on notice that a small unmanned aircraft may fly over them. Right. What's the definition um, of a closed restricted access site? Uh, a barn with, uh, with no walls. Or I would a, imagine a it would course. be something that the, the general public does not have access to. A closed set for a Hollywood movie. Uh, yeah. Something like that. Must not yeah, maintain. But, but take a look at these because the, this category two is, uh, let's see, it, it has to have the yeah, 11 foot pound threshold plus, plus RID. And it also has to have the production requirements. So that's the one where it's like, okay, can't build this one myself. Category and have three. have any exposed rate, rotating parts. Right, right. So, yeah, thank you. No, can't lacerate you with, uh, you know, so shrouded uh, props. Category three, same rules as category two, but they increase the kinetic energy requirements. And then category four is part 21. So they treat it like a, a full-size aircraft. Mm -hmm. Part, you mean 91, right? No, I, part I 21. Not. Remind me, what's part 21? It's the uh, manufacturing requirements for uh, oh, uh, for like Cessna and Piper and stuff. Okay. Uh -huh. gotcha. uh -huh. You so basically have to have maintenance, maintenance preventative maintenance, alterations, right. all need to be documented. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Only the certified about... mechanic changes it, etc. Do they talk about? Um, I know you guys mentioned like Frias or like being, like. I know the AMA sites are getting, you know, approval to be able to do things at their sites, right? But, like, what about, like, they don't allow Part 107 operations at AMA locations. So, how do I, how do I get around, like, what do I, can like, can we apply for that? Like, my organization apply for, you know, a specific location to, to do this? or Only if you're a, a community-based organization or an educational institution. Only those two can apply for a free uh, site. And so, and we, as we've mentioned, FPBFC are, you know, that's one of the things when we formed, you know, why did we immediately become a 501c3? Because in order to become a CBO, you had to be a 501c3. You had to have a set of safety guidelines. You had to have a mission that was um, uh, helping uh, aeronautical and um, education and a couple other uh, requirements. And we've, I think we've uh, touched uh, and checked the box for each of the requirements. Uh, Nico, when do we expect clarification from the FAA about FPV and the visual observer? We have uh, hopefully, asked and hopefully, hopefully next, you know, like hopefully yeah. next week. Yeah. So we are we are all over that. Obviously, that's a big deal to uh, FPV pilots. So uh, that's going to be a, a key. As an overall, as an overall shout out to the work that uh, this team, the FPV FC team, has done is that there are a number of uh, folks in the uh, manned uh, community, aviation community, the unmanned aviation community, uh, associations that are helping us out right now. In, and as you can see, our name really, really, I mean, we joked about it, but we're quite proud that we got 15 mentions in the uh, remote ID. We are being taken seriously by the FAA. So yeah. uh, this, is, this is positive. I think my hands went in the air. <laughs> when we discovered how how many references to us there were, so I'm very proud. I think uh, I mean I think the the team has done great work thus far, and we're just going to keep pushing and it, that. It uh, wasn't just the FPVFC; it was the members yeah. of the FPVFC. Um, they got called out directly as well. Yes, yeah. 
Yeah, it was great. I love so it. Anybody that used our write-up for a response to the uh, NPRM, thank you. Um, yeah, and as, uh, we, as Alex says, 90 of our members that submitted it, like back in January, February last year, that was a significant portion of our members. Yeah, it was. And then even beyond that, there were 750, I believe, ish mentions of the FPBFC in the comments. We ran right. searches through it just right. to kind of garner our impact. Um, not only that, but the write-up that we did inspired a lot of our partner organizations uh, to draw some of the same conclusions and submit a lot of the same comments. So the more unified we were in our comments, the bigger the impact. And I think that's definitely seen in the response. Well, thank you, Nico. I appreciate that. All right. Uh, any other questions or comments? Anything we need to clarify? Anything that you feel we got wrong? Uh, earlier in the meeting, I just wanted to comment on the part where we were talking about the production requirements for indoor UAS and how uh, some thought it would be limited and some thought it wouldn't. Uh, on page 218 of the remote ID document, uh, the FA where it taught with FA is replying to the comments proposed saying that this would happen for it would prohibit manufacturing of indoor UAS. Mm -hmm. It says that the agency regulates aircraft operated in the navigable airspace of the United States not unmanned aircraft operations conducted indoors. And as indicated in 89501, the production requirements apply to unmanned aircraft with remote identification operated in the airspace of the United States. So basically saying that it shouldn't, the FAA doesn't believe that it should interfere with production of indoor UAS. So all okay. the Chinese companies are gonna put for indoor use only on their drones when they send them over. Well, hey, you got that that ring camera that floats around your house too. So, yeah. So. Any mention of the protest? Uh, no. Good question. Uh, there was, and so, if you're if someone's not looking at the screen, the question uh, is: Was there any mention of the um, protest or a way to measure its impact? There was not. I can tell you on I was uh, I was February 27 and I was presenting at the to the FAA at the last or the one of the last acts and they closed the FAA offices in response so we definitely got their attention. Yeah, I would say so. And I mean, I would say the you know, the protest had a measurable effect in regards to in combination with the 53,000 comments that were sent in. Right. And, I think you know, all in all, the, it was. And the, you know, the if you walked around and you looked at the videos of the you know, protest, it was productive, mm -hmm. you know, peaceful, respectful, and clean. You know, and, and, and yeah, clean and diverse. And that's, you know, that helps us, you know, push all the notions of, hey, this is really important for STEM as well as, you know, these people are using FPV not for only for recreation, but for helping themselves to, uh, if it's PTSD or chronic pain, things like that. So very good message. Absolutely. Well, hey, make the aircraft for the rest of the world too, so RID doesn't have to take some manufacturers could leave the US market if they can't afford double the model types. So um, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't see 
I, I would say that, you know, they're going to produce one for, I, I think you're going with indoor use versus outdoor use text yet. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think Not, he's trying I, to say remote ID may be different around the world. So they wouldn't want like a model for the US, a model for Australia, a model for Africa. You're Maybe probably correct on that. But the other thing I would state is that generally the rest of the world follows the type of regulations that the U.S. puts in place. So TextJet, um, Europe has remote ID rules that are taking sort of taking effect, I think, starting uh, next week or something next uh, the beginning of the year. Um, yeah. And they're actually very similar to these rules where it's a broadcast kind of thing. So if the standard is very similar they could probably make the same drone follow it right right and the the standard that's being followed is the astm pep 34 committee which is an international standard it's a, a ra remote identification and tracking standard and i would also posit that you know these types of regulations are probably in talks in a lot of different european union con uh, countries as well as other countries around the world uh, keep in mind that UAS is a relatively new technology and people are struggling to catch up to it. So I would imagine over the next couple of years, you're going to see the same thing. So it's an interesting thought in terms of, well, I wouldn't want to be a manufacturer right now. However, there are a couple of uh, military uh, UAS manufacturers that we know of. And wouldn't it be cool that uh, all of a sudden you can have a much larger uh, base to amortize your uh, chipset against? So, you know, Companies are doing, or they're, you know, they're. It's in production today, and uh, this is uh, putting, you know, putting chipsets, you know, into a package and uh, getting the, changing the software. And I'm from global tech, so you know, I don't trivialize what that means, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it is also an opportunity. Yeah, imagine being the first organization or company to to roll out with a remote ID module. Like, that's going to be the 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 company that. Uh, Get the jump start. So, can RTS still be produced without RID? So, yes, RTS, RTS, really can, good question. RTS can be produced. Um, however, uh, so I gave this example earlier. Let's say uh, Pyrodrone uh, has an RTF that they want to sell. Uh, in, in order for it to fall under the um, home built category it needs to be missing a major part and the easiest major missing part that is customizable between users would be the rf receiver um so uh basically as long as it's missing that part and you have to purchase it separately or you know as a different line item on the invoice i would posit um that uh it will be classified as a home built because you will have to install that major missing component. What if it doesn't um, come with props and you have to put on your own props? Okay, so props is not a major missing component. <laughs> well, you can't fly but without motors them. motors would be, but motors so, would be. So we, we can, you know, if you're missing a uh, a receiver, we we would consider that an RTF. I mean, in, uh, in the well, RC not ready to fly. That would be a... An ARF? Well, yeah, I guess. Um, almost and, ready, almost, almost ready, ready to fly? Find and fly. Find and fly would have the receiver. Right. So um, so the yeah. old wording was that it needed to be 50% assembled by the end user. That that language is now gone, right? Gone. Um, gone. It's Which now, is... it, it's now uh, as long as there is some level of assembly required. 
And and from a component perspective, that's a big deal that they tossed out that fifty percent. Yeah. That had me nervous that the what was happening is they were they were creeping up on this part twenty one so that that we just you know they were going to eliminate hobbies hobbyists being able to build uh, their own uh, UAS and that's gone. So that's that to me was a very big uh, plus for us. Battery or power surface uh, major component no. Um, no. those are consumable. I would consider those consumable just like a <laughs> propeller. <laughs> and, and your registration sticker, no, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now, uh, so if it's missing that part and everybody, you know, some people fly FR Sky, some people fly Crossfire, some people fly you know, uh, DJI, you know, whatever the case may be, um so that's the easiest component to leave off the list and have the user selected from a different uh part of the website to create a different line item um so yes uh then what you would do is uh you could either um leave the remote id off and be relegated to a free site if you wanted to go fly um you know, at a fixed flying site, or you could get a module to uh, put onto the aircraft and uh, be subject to standard room or to uh, module-based remote. Josh, did you want to uh, put out a teaser on the document you want to put out over the next couple of days? Yeah, so um, all the information that actually I've been covering tonight came directly from the document that I'm creating. So I'm creating, I'm working on two different documents right now. Um, both of them are kind of in a midpoint. I would say one of them is kind of early point, and then the second one is is very close to finished. But um, I did a bulleted summary of what is in here, and I broke it down. Uh, into a little more forgiving language for everybody so they didn't have to read uh, all the uh, nonsense legalese uh, type of um, language. Um, I will try to include links when I mention a, a different uh, regulation or something like that uh, into the document, but basically it's just bulleted, easy to understand, um, breaks it down um, bullet style. So, you know, it's got all the different requirements for standard remote ID. It's got all the different requirements for broadcast uh, or sorry, module based remote ID. Um, it talks about free is it talks about registration. Uh, what's a home built aircraft? Um, and it's even going to go into some of the more technical side of means of compliance for people or organizations that want to create like a standard remote ID aircraft or a module based aircraft uh, or a module, a module remote ID module itself. Um, and then uh, the other document that I'm creating is actually an article just detailing uh, from a higher level perspective, uh, remote ID, um, kind of what was in the NPRM, what uh, our suggestions were, what got accepted, and what kind of got left on the cutting room floor. Um, but uh, that's kind of in the beginning stages. I am working on that. Um, keep in mind, I do have a day job. So, you know, give me... Give me a little bit. I do know that uh, several organizations have come out with their own articles, um, but I will get this out as soon as I can, I promise. And as a quick um, recap, there's really only a few things people need to know. First of all, dates, like it, nothing happens right away. Yes. Operators have until around September 2023 before we have to comply. And there are three ways to comply. One is buy a drone that is off the shelf and complies. Two is add a module to your existing drone. 
three is fly at a designated flying site. And that's like, mm-hmm. that's the important stuff people need to know. Yep, absolutely. All right. Uh, any other questions? I know people are leaving. I know it's getting late at night. I thank you all for joining us. Uh, I will hang around for a couple more minutes if anybody's got any questions. Um, but thank you all. Please let us know if you have questions. Feel free to email us or uh, hit us up on Discord or Facebook. Um, but beyond that, I will hang out if anybody's got any more questions or comments. And uh, 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 Beyond that, uh, have a good night, everybody. Yeah, thanks for showing up. Thanks for all the questions, everybody.